Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, January 6th. Governments, legislators, and consumers appear to be waking up to the fact that fashion companies are not reforming themselves at a pace and scale that will meaningfully combat climate change. As we reported in the State of Fashion 2023, the European Commission is cracking down on greenwashing and stating that terms like eco-friendly and good for the environment will only be allowed if underpinned by recognized excellence in environmental performance. Another industry strategy facing increased scrutiny is ESG investing, bond issues designed to finance climate-friendly social initiatives as investors seek out ethical and environmentally responsible investments. But most green bonds are tied to climate targets that are weak, irrelevant, or even already achieved. During his time as the Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, with $10 trillion in assets under management, Tarek Fancy spent his time evangelizing sustainable investing. But now, he decries it as a dangerous placebo that harms the public interest. This week on the BOF Podcast, I'm pleased to share this talk from BOF Voices 2022, The Answer to Inconvenient Truths, 
isn't Convenient Fantasies, followed by a panel led by our chief sustainability correspondent, Sarah Kent. I'm going to start with a random thought that occurred to me this morning. It's that if you look at the length of time the planet's been around, and then you look at human civilization, it's a sliver, right? Then you look at the people alive today, right? It's been probably about 400 generations since the dawn of civilization. So the people alive today, you know, we're a sliver of a sliver of a sliver. And that we're presiding over an extraordinary change that's going on today. And I know you probably think I'm going to talk about climate change. That's actually not what I mean, because you already know that. We're also presiding over the introduction for the first time in human history of a period where everything we're doing is being traced. 25 years ago, someone said something happened, you didn't have a time machine, you didn't know. Today, Google Maps knows you're here, right? WhatsApp messages and emails you're sending are going out. Everything will be able to be traced by future historians, not through some parchment or scroll. They'll have the WhatsApp message, right? They'll, know every, they'll be watching this video. Hold on to that thought for a second, because I'm going to come back to it. And let me introduce myself. So my name is Tarek Fancy. My last name is actually Fancy, like the word F-A-N-C-Y. Uh, my middle initial is B, actually, so my name is Tarek B. Fancy, because, <laughs> because my parents have a sense of humor. Um, and uh, I've sort of lived a career at the extremes of purpose and profit. It started on the profit side. I was a tech banker at the end of the dot-com bubble. And then I went into what's called vulture or distressed investing. And I worked for a guy who used to be the chief investment officer of a guy called Carl Icahn. Very aggressive corporate raider style. You know, it's not where I expected to find myself. Got promoted very quickly. And then at some point, I decided to leave entirely and focus on purpose. And it was through the inspiration of a very close friend of mine and roommate who passed away of cancer. But while fighting stage four melanoma, he went and created a charity for education in Kenya. This is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Dutch guy. And my family actually was from Kenya for generations. And it was truly inspirational, and it caused me to go to the purpose side. And I worked for years for no salary to create a, a digital charity called Rumi that now allows kids to learn on smartphones around the world, girls in Afghanistan, and so on. Very meaningful work. A few years ago, having been sort of one of the people who lived on both extremes, I was approached by BlackRock to sort of try to combine the two as the first-ever chief investment officer for sustainable investing. And uh, spoiler alert, it turned out not to be exactly what I expected. I think there was a lot of people working on things that were well-meaning. But in the end, I had enough experience in finance to start to realize that most of what we were expecting to come out of this wasn't going to come. Right? You had a lot of statements and policies, very nice, they're non-binding, words on a page. You had a lot of new products, the vast majority of which, if you understand finance, they're pretty much just moving money around. Right? So they can give different people baskets of greener or browner shares, depending on you know, your personal preferences. And it's been so successful, by the way, as a price segmentation strategy that today in the U.S. there's an anti-ESG movement, right? People want anti-ESG funds. And the simplest way I'll explain it to you is by quoting Michael Jordan. From the 90s, someone asked him, why don't you comment on politics? And he said, Republicans buy sneakers too. Turns out Republicans buy ETFs, right? And so what I saw on the inside was the system that wasn't really changing in any meaningful way. It was pretty much just painting itself green. You know, I remember leaving, and I told a friend of mine, I said, it's kind of like giving wheatgrass juice to a cancer patient. Like, it's well-marketed and green, but there's no reason to believe it's going to stop the slow-moving cancer. And a lot of the ideas behind it were predicated on this idea that the market will magically fix itself. And so I use a lot of sports analogies. The way I think about competitive markets is that they're like competitive sports. So first of all, there is no such thing as a free market. That's total bullshit. That makes no sense at all. Ask any lawyer, and any market is a collection of rules. You can change those rules, and you'll get different outcomes, right? And they all, they all could be called market outcomes. And so in the game of capitalism, the players are trying to compete for 
profits. And they're usually locked into that because of legal obligations on how companies work. And sports, you're competing to get points, right? So say it's basketball, you know, within the rules, you're going to try to score as many points as you can. And most of the narrative we were pushing out was this idea that there's this magical new era where good sportsmanship and playing clean leads to more points. It's in their own interest to play clean as a response to the fact that the game has been dirty for 20 years, in large part because many companies are playing dirty because it scores points, right? There's loopholes they're exploiting. And so the analogy didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, why would we rely on good sportsmanship when it hasn't worked for 20 years? Look like wheatgrass juice to a cancer patient. So I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so I quietly transitioned out. I spent six months sort of doing it really amicably. We had a going away party. And then something happened, you know, six, nine months after I left, I moved back to my hometown of Toronto and the pandemic hits. I'd already started to have this concern. I thought, well, wait a second, this may not be harmless, right? This ESG stuff could actually be harmful if no one else knows it's BS, right? I mean, it's great if I know it and I had the position of trying to, as a trained investor, trying to integrate ESG in the largest pool of assets in the history of capitalism. But if no one else knows that doesn't work, we might put our stock in what I call a convenient fantasy, right? That we can leave everything the way it is, the status quo, and you add more data and disclosure and new funds and suddenly the world corrects itself and there's no sacrifice required. And so I was worried enough about it that I did it. I worked with the university in, in Canada on a study to see how the messages around ESG were affecting public attitudes. First of all, we found that the majority of the public has no idea how the financial system works, right? So they don't really know what helps and what doesn't. And so if you give them decisions with their own funds, they'll try their best, but they don't really know what creates impact and what doesn't. But the larger concern I had was that we also found that when you showed people, and this worked in the US, all these messages about like companies are magically gonna become green and discover social purpose and so on, it actually caused them to be less likely to support government regulation. For example, if you go out to the world and you tell people, listen, the solution to climate change is buy a low carbon ETF and you get to make money and fight climate change at the same time, who the hell is gonna vote for a carbon tax? I mean, if you honestly think about it, we're always gonna take the convenient fantasy. And what this showed me was that it wasn't like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient. It's like giving wheatgrass juice to a cancer patient and then you realize that they're delaying chemo. And the biggest concern I have is that the fallacy in how we talk about climate change today is that we talk about it as a collective mistake. Right? It was like, oh, we're all messing up and the polar bears are going to suffer. I don't think that's a particularly good way to galvanize any kind of political constituency into action. A, and B, I don't think it's true. What we're really talking about is a shared problem, a collective problem that all of humanity needs to work to solve. And every single day we delay it, we don't just amplify the costs, we transfer them. I'm engaged in a public debate with the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink. I've started making the point that, listen, he doesn't respond. And it's kind of grating because what am I relative to Larry? I'm younger, I'm poorer, and I'm darker skinned. Who's going to lose out from the delay on, on climate change? The youngest, the poorest, and the darkest skinned. So I decided to go public. I started writing papers about it. I, I did what I knew how to do as a brown guy who grew up in a suburb of Toronto that was, you know, not the roughest, but it was kind of rough around the edges at times. And I said, this is bullshit. I'm going to go pick a fight. Started trying to create a debate. I wrote papers everywhere. I wrote a paper that went viral called The Secret Diary of a Sustainable Investor. And the major points around it were that we now know how to flatten a curve. We just did it, right? With COVID-19, there was infections curve, and the epidemiologist said, you can't leave this to the free market, right? You got to close the schools. You got to restrict travel. You know, it's nice to tell people to wear masks, but you also have to have a mask mandate. Otherwise, you're not going to flatten the curve. Funnily enough, 
economists have been saying for decades, and Nobel Prizes have been awarded for saying, we need government regulation also to flatten the emissions curve. And yet that doesn't happen. In fact, what does happen is that, and this is an, an example in the U.S. that blows my mind, Netflix, Boeing, Disney, and BlackRock, for years, they've been putting out ESG statements, right, CSR things, right? All four of those companies also have fought off resolutions from their own shareholders asking them to disclose their political spending, which, post the Supreme Court decision in 2010 called Citizens United, is effectively traceless and limitless. So if you, if you use the sports analogy, I liken it to like a player comes out and they basically, given talking points on good sportsmanship after the game, and then someone says, hey, by the way, we heard a rumor you might be paying the rest behind the scenes. And they say, yeah, I don't feel like talking about that, and they leave. It's fairly disingenuous. And so today you see the data showing us that the public understands that. One of the craziest statistics is earlier this summer, a study came out that said that if you ask CEOs around the world in the C-suite, if they think their own companies are greenwashing, 58% said yes. The crazy part, by the way, in the US, it's 68%. Two out of three believe their own company is greenwashing. I suspect that none of them actually say that on stage, right? There's a, there's a gap between PR and what's happening in reality. And the biggest concern I have is that it's not just that it's destroying the public faith in the system, right? 70% of Americans thought the system was rigged before the pandemic. It's also destroying the faith of the young in capitalism. So a really interesting analogy. I'm running this nonprofit roomie. I created it before I'd even gone back to BlackRock. This really cool style of learning that's kind of, we call it meme learning, replacing social media for kids, right? It's actually kind of it's growing super fast in the pandemic. And I did a session with some of the learners who are 90% 29 and under, right? It's the Gen Z's that we heard about yesterday were really angry. They were really interested in what I was saying because I'm the founder and I'm, you know, I'm talking about climate change. And I give this whole spiel and I say, the system is broken. We need to fix the rules, right? Good sportsmanship isn't it. It's time to call on the refs. And so one kid puts up their hand and they say, that's why I've always said capitalism as a system is a waste of time. We need to get rid of it. I thought, huh. And someone else puts up her hand and she says, all corporations lie. Right? That's, we all kind of know that. And I thought it's so fascinating that I was trying to tell them that we need to fix the system. They heard we need to jettison the system. Why? Because every single year they see the leaders of that system stand up on stage and say, climate change is the greatest threat to humanity. And every single year they read the latest IPCC report coming out of the UN or other scientist bodies saying we're pretty much getting nothing done. They rationally conclude that this is kind of a heist, right? But, you know, this system clearly doesn't work, and we need to find a better one to work with. So I think when we look at the work we're doing, all of us, and I think this works across every industry, because the interesting thing about BlackRock is you get advantage of, like, every industry and how it works, I think is, it's a dose of honesty. And I think that dose of honesty has to happen even if it's outside of our personal incentives. I talk to people all the time in different industries, and they'll say, listen, I work on this initiative that's green, but they're experienced enough to know that it will look nice optically, but it's not going to have the desired effect. And I think at a moment in time where we know future is starting to look back and say, what did these people do when we were at these tipping points? We cannot be in a situation where we're answering inconvenient truths of convenient fantasies. Because I submit to you, we won't make 2050 and figure out if net zero is going to happen. Long before that, we're going to see massive political instability because the foundations of the capitalist system will be destroyed and a generation of young people no fault of their own will look at this and say, this system doesn't work and we need to overturn it. So two thoughts before we introduce this panel for this audience. Number one, we're going to need more clean players, right? This sport needs more clean players. 
So there's a lot of in people in this room who are leaders. It is more expensive. It is harder. It's going to be difficult going into a tough economic period. But we're going to need to provide some examples of how play can be clean. And in part, that's for the second reason. It's so we can go to governments and tell them that, listen, we need regulation. Because number one, individual action is not going to aggregate enough, right? Nice people using paper straws is not going to do it. Right? We need it to be systemic. It has to be everyone. Number two, it can't be voluntary. It has to be mandatory. And I think if we couch that, trying to play clean and leading the way with a very honest message that it's pretty much time to call on the refs because otherwise we're not going to be able to create the kind of systemic change required, then I think we actually have a chance of turning the tide this decade. Thank you. We'll be right back with more on the BOF Podcast. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
I'm delighted to be joined today by a fantastic panel. Next to me is Baroness Lola Young, a member of the House of Lords and the founder of the all-party parliamentary group on sustainability and ethics in fashion. And beaming in from the US very, very early morning is Maxime Badat, an author and director of the New Standard Institute, and Ken Pucker, who is an advisory partner at the private equity firm Berkshire Partners and was also the former COO of Timberland. And Maxine, I wanted to start by coming to you because you've kind of lived this. You went from founding your own fashion company, Zadie, to moving out of that space and now being one of the driving forces behind the New York Fashion Act. So what prompts that change and, and what is it that you look when we talk about the need for a referee? What does that ref need to do? Starting from, well, a background as a lawyer, but working in the fashion space and, and launching a brand and what I realized is that what we wanted to sell, what we wanted to market about our sustainability, we had free range to do so. And what I also learned from that process is as a brand, we shared suppliers with other brands. And so even if we wanted to do the right thing as a brand, we would have to pay essentially for all the other brands that were sharing our suppliers. And so it made it very clear. And while we were a private company, we were competing against public companies whose motive was to maximize profit. And so what we very clearly understood is that we were existing in the system that even if we did the right thing or were trying to do the right thing, we would never be able to do so. And the system certainly wouldn't be able to do so without some basic legislation in place. As Tarek said, there's no such thing as a completely free market and that we need basic guardrails to make this market successful. And so that was then what led me away from the brand side, working on the New Standard Institute and ultimately supporting the New York Fashion Act, which would put these basic guardrails in place to allow markets to thrive. And what are those basic guardrails that you're asking for with the New York Fashion Act? Yeah, so it's really looking at the main areas of impact of this industry and not letting every company define what sustainability means to them by how they feel that day. It's about labor and labor practices, because this is an industry that still relies heavily on real people, mainly women, mainly coming from the global south. And it's about chemical use and chemical management so that we're not using fashion to kill rivers and, and oceanways and aligning a company with the Paris Agreement, ensuring that a company, which of course this industry is very reliant on fossil fuels, that they reduce their impact and reduce their fossil fuel use in line with the Paris Agreement. So just these very fundamental basic ideas about what does it mean to operate responsibly within a large market. It's based in New York, but it won't just affect American companies. It's any company operating in New York with a revenue of 100 million, right? That's right. Yeah. So the idea of the bill is if we, I think a good parallel is the fuel efficiency standards that came out of California, which ended up being a global standard because California has such a large market. This is the same idea. If it's a company overdoing over 100 million in global revenue and choosing to sell to the New York market, they would be impacted by this bill. 
And we're at a moment where there is a global push to regulate the fashion industry more. And, you know, Lola, I know that you've sort of been at the forefront of this in the UK with the Modern Slavery Act. What are the challenges facing policymakers when it comes to bringing in regulation? I don't think this idea of the need for guardrails is a new one. Why don't we have better rules? successive governments will always tell you it's too much of a burden on business to expect them to do X, Y and Z. And it always is until we get the legislation to do it. People said that before we had the Bribery Act and now people kind of take that for granted. And hopefully we're moving to a stage where so even with the Modern Slavery Act, right, which focuses on labour exploitation and, and abuses, it was kind of reluctantly enacted. Interestingly, here, it was businesses that were at the forefront of that and saying, this is not a burden. We really need to be able to have this law behind us to level the playing field, to use your sporting metaphor. So I would say the move towards a mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence legislation, which is what the EU are currently considering is the right way to go. Let's at least have a really informed debate about it. And I think we're actually meant to get an update on that piece of policy tomorrow. Oh, right. On we'll the first... I'll be looking out for that. <laughs> I think the EU has a tendency to delay their uh, yeah, policy discussions yeah. a little bit. But Ken, I wanted to come to you because you have a really interesting perspective, kind of similar to Tarek, having lived on the inside and now being a little bit more on the outside. But, you know, at Timberland, we've spoken before about this being a company that really wanted to do the right thing, but that was very, very difficult. What were the challenges there and, and what do you see changing, if anything? Well, I had the good fortune to work for Timberland for 15 years. It was both uh, a public company, but privately controlled. The Swartz family had Class B shares with 10 to 1 voting rights. And I worked for the second generation CEO, Sydney, and then his son, Jeff. Jeff was committed by faith to this agenda of sustainability. And at the same time, because of the capital structure, controlled the company. And so if you go back as far as the year 2000, Timberland's mission was actually a blend of what he described as commerce and justice. Justice being a word that one doesn't often hear today in a business context. And yet at Timberland, it had three distinct components. Those were global human rights, citizen service, environmental stewardship. And if you just pick on one of them for a second, I can describe how difficult it is for an individual company outside the system to try to address something as systemic as climate. So the last seven years that I was at Timberland, when I served as chief operating officer, we reduced our carbon emissions by an average of about 11% a year, while the company grew about 11% a year. And so you'd say, well, that's a pretty terrific performance. And yet, if you look at the footnotes under the charts that we supplied in our sustainability reports, you'd see that we reduced our scope one and scope two emissions, not our scope three emissions. Scope one and scope two are really uh, the emissions that are direct emissions within the company or for purchased electricity. Scope three emissions are 15 other categories, and they're all upstream and downstream emissions that aren't scope one and scope two. And so in the case of most footwear and apparel companies, about 96 or 97 percent of emissions are in scope three. So what we were saying was we succeeded in reducing about four percent of our emissions by about 11 percent a year. But we didn't have information about the 96 percent of our emissions. And that wasn't because we were ill intended. It's because it's very complex to get that data. You'd need about 50 to 100,000 data points every six months, none of which were tracked. And so you think, OK, it's probably better now, right? Because I left the company in 2007, 2008. But if you look at reporting to CDP, which is the aggregator for carbon data, and just look at public companies, less than 50% supply scope three information today. 
And so we're 25 years into trying to do this on a voluntary basis to have companies measure, report, certify their results. And emissions over that period of time were up probably 45%. And so the idea that companies can do this on their own or are incented to do this on their own, even well-intended companies, turns out to be really difficult. And so I agree with the group that systemic solutions are what's needed because individual actors, even well-intentioned individual actors, can't do it on their own. You know, Tarek, you've obviously been talking about this, not specific to the fashion industry, but for some years now. What kind of engagement are you seeing around more of a systemic push for change, for collaboration to try and get regulators to move? Is that happening? It's starting to happen, but I think what needs to happen first actually is a narrative needs to turn. Because the narrative and the conversation that's being had today is a dangerous one because it doesn't actually give the political room to give the kind of regulation we need. I'd share an idea of the Overton window, right? People may have heard of this idea. The Overton window is this concept of the range of politically acceptable possibilities, right? Because I could say something on one end or the other. I'm not going to get elected, so it's not possible. And so one of the interesting ideas is that the Overton window can shift based on the conversations we have, public attitudes, and that allows someone to get elected to push something. And I think people have said for years now that the Overton window has moved to a point where we can fight climate change. I would say it actually hasn't yet. I'd say it's moved to a point where we all kind of know we need to do something, but we don't really want to pay the bill. And I say that as a society. Because I'm from Toronto, I'll give a, a kick to Canadians as an example here. A few years ago, there's a study and found 70% of Canadians want aggressive action against climate change. The same time that someone else did another study and they said the average Canadian wouldn't pay $10 a month to make that happen. The funny thing was Netflix was $9.99 at the time. So it gave rise to a few headlines as if people wouldn't pay their Netflix subscription. I think that the challenge is that people aren't ready to make sacrifice. And the biggest concern I have is if the titans of business are out there selling a fantasy that aligns with their short-term interests. And let's be honest, I mean, like Larry Fink's seven years old, right? Like he gains the most from the system is least at the risk of the consequences of an action. It's the exact mirror opposite for her, you know, his 22-year-old entry-level employee, right? She's at the entry level and it's going to eat the consequences. And so you sort of see that they don't really want to have that conversation, but I think the world would be served if they came out and said, if Jamie Dimon, Larry Fingal said, listen, we can't solve this. We need regulation because if we don't do this deal, we don't buy this asset, somebody else will go and do it because that's how the market system is designed to operate. And one of the reasons I saw it so quickly is because I was a distressed investor. So there, people were saying, oh, if I'm a responsible person, I don't do this. And I said, yeah, that's nice. But like, I used to sit on the other side. We would excitedly jump in when there's an inefficient situation like that. So I think the real conversation even before regulation has to be businesses and business leaders saying, look, we need a systemic solution. And that can, is not going to come from the New York banker community. Like future historians will look really angrily at us if, if, we, if we leave the fate of the planet in the hands of the speed at which New York bankers ask to be regulated. So it's going to have to be like an alternative <laughs> voice that comes out and says, listen, like, like I'm an investment banker, but I think we need to regulate to protect the ESG in particular. Well, and also it sounds like what you're saying is we need to leave money on the table. That's 100% it. I mean, because the money we're taking off the table right now is effectively borrowing against the prospects of future generations, right? I mean, young people look and they say, there's finite natural resources, right? And there's a short-term incentive to exploit them more than the public interest would allow. That is a textbook example of a situation where you need regulation to protect the public interest from elected officials. That can't happen if all these countries are all tethered together because there's leakage and the one most powerful country has unlimited political spending, which pretty much gives the players who gain the most from the loopholes an almost unlimited ability to, to pay to keep them open. 
And I think another interesting element of this, which Ken kind of alluded to, is that we're also playing with an information deficit. Well, we have very good information about the financial performance of companies and very poor information about the social and environmental performance. And I wanted to come back to what you were saying, Lila, about the role of the consumer. Because without that information, how can the consumer be held responsible to make good decisions? Yeah, well, I think even with the information, so what is the information, right? You can reel off a whole heap of metrics and, you know, like, like we've heard of the example of, of you know, the scope one and two and, and, and not really accounting for scope three. You can reel off all of these things. And what's the average citizen to know? What do even I know when I see all these figures? And that's why I think regulation has to step in for all the reasons that we said about needing to be systemic change. But that systemic change also has to happen within governments because they're in thrall to certain kinds of businesses in whose interest it is to keep mining fossil fuels and and all the rest of it, exploiting labour as actually has been done for hundreds of years. So it's really that we've managed to refine this system to work to the benefit of a relatively small number of people who are ageing, like myself, as we're all ageing. But, you know, it's not borrowing, it's stealing from the future, to me. And I think we've got everything sort of upside down. And if we don't have systemic change... It's not going to happen naturally or organically, or if it does happen, it will happen too late. And so government's got to step in. They've got to be really bold, but we have to tell them to be bold at the ballot box and in every opportunity on every platform. Otherwise, they will do nothing. And I have to say that there are some businesses, so I don't want to tar all businesses with the same brush. There are businesses, for example, from the Corporate Justice Coalition, however flawed, and you can always pick holes in some of the people who, who signed up to that. But by by and large, the businesses that sign up to that, the NGOs that have signed up to that, and civil society that signed up to that, and investors, you know, really do want to make a difference because they can see that time is running out and they're very much recognised. It's not just um, Generation Z or Z or whatever you call it, but it's, it's those to come after that that we're really selling out on. I think that's a really interesting complexity to, to get at as well, that there's not a binary good guys and bad guys. There's a lot of complexity in here. And Maxine, I think you've probably been at the sharp edge of this and, you know, thinking about what should go into the Fashion Act, because particularly in this industry at the moment, simply defining what it is we mean when we say we want a more sustainable industry and what we want it to look like is still pretty hotly debated. And I know, Maxine, there's been quite a journey with the shape of the Fashion Act. How has your thinking around that changed? I mean, I think the impact areas haven't changed dramatically. I think it's how they've been defined and who's defining them, right? We've had an industry that has self-defined what sustainability means. So if they're building a basketball court in the back of a factory, they can celebrate that and call that human rights. But that has nothing to do with how much pay their workers are actually receiving. Where do they live? Can they feed their children and themselves? So I think the idea of legislation is that it also has to be very meaningful legislation. Is it actually addressing the fundamental problems, which are human rights related, water related, land management related, and climate related, and chemical related as well? It's not an endless list of things. It's the hotspots of the issues, making sure that the legislation is addressing the hotspots of the issues and working from there. It's not an infinite number of things to address. We just have to really focus on where the biggest impact areas are 
and make sure that the legislation is addressing that. Yeah, and I think to add to that, absolutely, but it also has to be vigorously implemented because there's no point in having legislation that people can get out of doing. You know, so if you say something is discretionary or if you say it's mandatory, so I like the M, the big M, as it were, for mandatory. You've got to do this, you've got to respond to this. And we learned this lesson from the Modern Slavery Act, which I won't go into detail now <laughs> because of time. But, you know, if, if the government isn't willing to implement, to monitor, to make sure that people are actually prosecuted. Nobody's been prosecuted. Nobody's had an injunction issued against them for violating the Modern Slavery Act. And we, I can name thousands of companies that have. So you've got to have something that's really vigorous in pursuing the organisations that don't live up to that legislation, as you would in any other area of legislation. Why should businesses be exempt? To completely agree with Baroness Young is... You have to have responsibility for the businesses and you have to have responsibility for the regulators to actually ensure that the regulation is being imposed. And so I think that's the kind of the art and craft of legislation and also making sure that we are as citizens, again, as Baroness Young mentioned, pushing our regulators to pass laws that are actually meaningful. Right. And it's interesting here to get into this idea that regulation is not a panacea. Because we've been talking about this as a, such an important framework to move change, but it has to be good regulation and it has to be robust regulation. And, you know, you mentioned the Modern Slavery Act and one of the criticisms that have been levied against the Modern Slavery Act is that it is just a requirement for disclosure, which doesn't necessarily change anything. So what should we be looking for governments to move beyond now for looking for real change? Well, we should be looking at disclosure. We should be looking at exact kinds of disclosure, not just a kind of general, what do you think about modern slavery or environmental sustainability? Very precise. We should be looking at what businesses will do to compensate when they do violate those laws or when they discover through their wonderful due diligence that they are exploiting their labour or they are poisoning rivers or they are doing this. What are they going to do, not only to rectify that situation, but to remediate because why should, again, if it, was, if it was a question of, you know, me doing something horrible to you and you, you would expect some kind of compensation if I've damaged you. And, and you know, that, that's the kind of system under which we live. So businesses, again, should be compensating those communities on the, and those individuals that have suffered as a result of their lack of attention to these details. Which I think gets us back to why businesses are reluctant to support regulation, because that, as a business, is very... Scary, I would think. And Derek, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, how can a business sell that to an investor? I mean, it's challenging, right? I mean, the lie that's been sold a lot is that, like, it's in every company's own interest to fight climate change. That's definitely not true, because, first of all, incentives in capitalism today are the shortest term they've been in decades. CO pays the highest in decades. CO tenures are shortest. So they get paid pretty quickly. And so they care about COVID because you can't mess that up. In a few weeks, the place is on fire. The one that takes decades, they're kind of like, I'm not so sure about that. And the most efficient, unfortunately, profit maximization scheme in the short term is usually not to make expensive investments to be green. It's to market yourself as being green, to fend off regulation. It's like the tobacco companies. Mm -hmm. it, we know this. This is how it works. And so I think the biggest thing for finance is that we need to change incentives. Like the one secret to understanding financial flows, which the financial people always try to hide from you, is that if you want to change your behavior, change their incentives. 
right? If they make more money doing something, they'll do more of it to make less, less. If you don't want businesses that kill people, then you make it illegal. If you want less pollution, you tax it. You want more stuff, you, you subsidize it. These are all fairly standard in economics. And I think the biggest point is we have to change incentives because even disclosure alone, mm. if you just disclose a market failure, it's kind of like, it's like VAR, Right. But then there's like no referee to give out a red card. Right. Like it's kind of so. And, and I think on that point, I'd, I'd add to what Lola said. It has to have teeth. Right. I mean, again, if you have a referee and they appear and people are kicking each other in the face and this referee clearly doesn't know how to take out a yellow card, they might as well not be there. You need to actually be you know, aggressive enough and you got to hand out a few red cards. And that will change behavior in no time in the financial services industry for sure. But that also is not going to make them money in the short term. And most of the people making decisions are getting paid in the short term. Um, we're at time, but Ken, I'm going to give you the last word as someone who's sort of watched the fashion industry for decades. Do you see any change and do you see appetite for this kind of move within the industry? You know, I think it's appropriate that you had Tarek here talking about ESG because the analog between ESG and sustainability and fashion is legitimate. Expecting consumers to understand the contents of ETFs is like expecting consumers to understand the difference between organic cotton and conventional cotton and being able to trace the supply chain. So I think expecting consumers to do this is a fool's errand. I do think, however, that it is in the collective interest of major fashion companies to raise their hand and act with courageous courage collectively to advocate for regulation because they are beginning to see the impact of finite resources and climate change on their businesses. It's no longer a long out, perhaps, threat. It's more uh, imminent and real. I think, actually, it won't end up costing more. I think we'll innovate to find better solutions. One example is renewable energy today is cheaper in 90% of the world than fossil fuel energy. And yet, countries like Vietnam run principally on coal. We need legislation to get support for developing countries to make that transition. And then ultimately, the fashion industry and others will benefit. I think that's a great point to end on. The incentives right now aren't aligned. But if we don't act to change that framework, then we're going to deal with very serious consequences that are going to cost everyone. So Ken, Maxine, Tarek, Lilith, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? 
For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.